0: Racist Film Club Podcast, a production of the Commons, the online faith space created by the South Sound Methodist Co-op. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're a bunch of people excited to watch movies and grow together through the lens of anti racism. I'm your host, Lauren Fontanilla, and today I'm joined by Pastor Alexa Eisenbarth from First Olympia. How are you today, Pastor Alexa?
1: I am doing well. I'm glad to be here. And um, yeah, I enjoyed the film. So I'm glad and uh, excited to talk about it, Lauren. Mm-hmm.
0: It's a it's a very new film. I think we, we've done a, a few older ones this season of the, the podcast and the club. Uh, but this one is pretty much brand new. It came out 2022. So
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think that's sort of part of why we selected it because it's something that is sort of in the, you know, national public conversation right now Mm -hmm. the last film that uh that we talked about lauren you and i uh was the last holiday and there was a lot of like interpretive work we had to do Mm -hmm. right we were we were sort of watching it and and drawing out trying to sort of find and look for you know the work of anti-racism we could do upon reflection of the movie this one is much more explicit right it is very much like explicitly about racism yes so yeah and it's just in the national you know the public conversation right now as a new film yes uh there's also some
0: uh legislation that is extremely relevant the federal anti-lynching act named after Emmett Till was also passed in 2022
1: yes yes and I think they named that at the end of the film Um, yes and so it took you know some now I can't remember the exact years but you know 78 years or something like that in order for it to pass Mm -hmm. wild wild So for those who
0: haven't read the title of today's episode yet, we are discussing the film Till, which I think that I will just jump to a description of and we can start talking about the plot. Great. Till is a true story based on the murder of Emmett Bo Till. Written partially by Keith Beauchamp and directed by Chinoya Chuku, Till is told through the eyes of his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, and her civil rights activism that followed in the decades after her son's brutal death. When Bo takes a vacation from his home in Chicago to see his cousins down in Money, Mississippi, he is kidnapped, tortured, and killed. The rest of the film centers on the incredible efforts his mother made to shed light on the brutality of his death. And in the final act, Mamie's path towards justice leads down South where she testifies against his murderers in an infamous 1955 trial. This is a difficult film to watch, difficult and necessary. Mm -hmm. Like Mamie's original decision to hold an open casket funeral, even in 2023, we must acknowledge the harsh truths of our past and present story of Emmett Till and his mother is more relevant now than
1: ever. Thanks, Lauren. Part of the reason this story, I think, sticks in our collective memory so strongly is because of the work of Mamie, mm-hmm. Emmett's mom, and in making the choice to, uh, to have there be an open casket at, at Emmett's funeral. It really made me think about the now long line of women who followed Mamie, And, you know, the moms of black sons who've been lynched, who've been killed and who have decided to not let it go silently into the night, Mm -hmm. right, to not let it to not let it be forgotten. And so, you know, I'm thinking of people like um, like George Floyd, but also like Michael Brown and Ferguson, right, like just the the stories that have really ignited movements for change and enraged people because they finally saw something that is happening you know more often than we'd like to think and so being able to sort of reveal the violence that is occurring and and just making sure that it isn't covered up i think that is one of the legacies of mamie that we you know we witness in this film but is also something that's very difficult to witness Mm -hmm. you know i mean we have like this great separation from it now right and it's not you know we aren't in the room or whatever but it is it's also hard to watch people see it right i think that was one of the like The hardest parts of this film for me was like her. I think it's her cousin, uh, her relative, who was in Mississippi, comes to the funeral and says, "I can't, like, I can't see it." And she's like, "We have to, we have to see it." And and so anyway, that was sort of the the crux for me, right? Is just that Mamie really invites people and sort of demands that we look at it. And I think that's representative of sort of the larger the larger movement and and there's lots of people who who have followed in her in her footsteps in that way
0: yes definitely there is a creative choice that uh the director made that fits in with this conversation and the choice was to not show violence on screen towards black bodies yeah we see the effects Mm -hmm. because we're rooted in Mamie's perspective and so we see what the violence has done to her son Emmett, but we don't see it actually happening yeah. Did you notice that or is that like is are you just hearing about this?
1: Yeah, no, I noticed it. Um I didn't I don't think I knew that it was a an explicit choice, but I was appreciative of it. I I have to be honest. I put off watching this film for as long as possible. And I think that was part of it was like I was anticipating having to witness violence, which is not particularly enjoyable or good for my well-being. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is instructive for us as a society now, right? So, so Mimi makes sure that everyone sees – you know, the effects, right? To see what the outcome of the violence was. But now in so much of our reckoning with police brutality in particular, Mm -hmm. body cam video being published, you know, being public, made public, and for people to like consume this violence has been a problem. I mean, I think it's part of our, you know, our national conversation of like, are we being desensitized to this violence that it's not even shocking anymore because we see it so often right and there's something about right being honest and truthful and having this account that's from a camera right that that there's like and something observing what happened rather than just the witnesses testimonies of people who lived or like survived and were well enough to to tell the tale potentially untruthfully so like body cameras are good but is it is it good for public to consume so much violence, especially against people of color and and people who are, are marginalized in our society. And I, I don't think so. Like, I don't think it's good for us on the whole.
0: There's definitely the argument that it's dehumanizing in many ways. I know that at one point, a few years ago now, I was watching some commentary about the film 13, 13th, hmm. the documentary about the prison system and institutionalized racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that director, Ava DuVernay, was on record as saying that she didn't want to make films that involved violence violence with Black bodies because of her worry that audiences would be desensitized and would start to see people as just their bodies and not whole persons.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And I I think that this movie does that as well, right? Like Emmett, we never because we don't see him actively being injured we know that it's happening but he gets to be a whole person right and and his family and in their complexity I think that was a really interesting piece too of how Mamie was portrayed in in the media and that she had to kind of protect her image and and that Emmett's dad had died and that, you know, then his mom had been remarried and then divorced and was, you know, seeing someone new. And um, and there were so many people who grieved him. Mm-hmm. That was another, like, significant point, right, that isn't always told in the story. When we tell the plot points, you don't always hear the wider story. To think of his grandparents mourning him and his, like, soon-to-be stepdad mourning him. Those stories don't always get to be told especially when there's like a fight to be had for justice mm-hmm. and, and that's an important fight and it's a good fight. And it's not the whole, it's not the whole story. I think uh,
0: one of the most interesting parts of the film to me was the publicity mm-hmm. that went into Mamie's trip down South mm-hmm. and how her fiance wasn't invited yeah. because they weren't married and he wasn't Emmett's father. And so it would have been easy to spin a a story that took the complexity and then demonized it.
1: Yeah. And they use religious language for it, uh, which was really interesting. So she's like, they're going to, you know, cast me as a Jezebel. They're saying I'm a Jezebel, Mm -hmm. which is a term, a name for sort of a um, it's a, it's a caricature of a woman who is a temptress. Right. And, and a foreign woman, especially like that. Like white women are not called Jezebels. It's Jezebels are people who are foreign temptresses. To cast her as a Jezebel is very much this this othering, right? Not only in her womanhood, but also in her in her race and her the sort of like othering, like you aren't, you're foreign, you're not one of us. You know that double oppression in that accusation. Mm-hmm. So one of the pieces that I thought was really. Profound and helpful framing that I had not heard before was right after Emmett Till was murdered. There was someone who came on TV who worked for the NAACP, and he said something like this. When the message to white folks is to stop Negroes from advancing by any means short of violence, it's not too long before someone doesn't stop short. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really helpful framing and especially in regards to the ongoing conversation about police brutality. I think we can all agree that police are given sort of the most permission to enact force. Yes. Enact like brute force in our society, right? That they have this, um, this authority to do that. And so they have authority to, to, exert more force upon others than any other sort of citizen. So if the charge for, for police in particular, who, you know, we are sort of coming to understand, especially as white people, which I am uh, that police sort of have this history of like, that they, in a lot of ways, policing in America upholds white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so if, if, if police in some ways are enforcers of white supremacy and their charge is to use force up to a certain extent, right, in order to uphold it, then it's not surprising that with an inch they take it a mile. It's not a hard leap to make. It's a small step into killing people, Mm -hmm. even though that isn't their explicit charge.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's also the side of accountability, too, Mm -hmm. that if people aren't being held accountable, then they're much more likely to then escalate beyond what they might morally have the ability to do.
1: Absolutely. I think accountability is a really interesting question in the story as well, because in the perspective of... The Bryants, I think, is their names in the perspective of the Bryants. So the the woman who Emmett supposedly, you know, hit on or was flirting with and her husband in their perspective, I think that they thought that they were holding Emmett as a representative of all black people. Accountable to the social contract, which is white supremacy. Mm. In their mind, Emmett betrayed the social construct. Like he went beyond the bounds that have been placed around Black people, like of what was appropriate and acceptable. Even though those bounds, right, we can clearly see are unjust and racist and violent and evil.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In their minds, it's the... It's the water they're swimming in, right? And and so Emma in some way betrayed this in their perspective. And so their response is an attempt at like holding accountable the entire black race for their their transgressions, right? Their crossing over of the boundaries, the way that they aren't able to uphold society and be quote unquote, civilized.
0: Yeah. Uh, also accountability, I think, comes in on Mamie's side, still to do with the Bryants, where she really wants to hold uh, Caroline. Is it Caroline?
1: Caroline, Caroline.
0: Yeah, The the woman in the relationship. Yeah. She wants to hold her accountable because it's her words and her accusation that got Emmett killed. And even though her husband and brother-in-law are on trial, she's not at all and of course no one ends up getting held accountable legally in the end anyway because the of how the ruling turns out but the fact that carolyn or caroline was never even uh,
1: deposed right that's a huge injustice in Mamie's perspective and she gives false witness yes yeah so i mean, we'll talk about that in a minute but um there's a there's a A moment towards the beginning of the film after Emma is killed where Mamie says, like, she's going to be fine. She has her kids and she's going to be fine. And, like, she had this knowledge, like, this knowing that there was never going to be any consequences for her. Mm -hmm. Which is a, you know, stark indictment on our justice system and our society and culture as well. I think that this story, like, is a really difficult one to reckon with uh, for White women, right? It's a. I think it's a really harsh indictment on white women.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think appropriately, right? And and it's challenging. And and here's what I think people do. Here's what I think people do. People want to believe or say to themselves, right, like that I am not a racist because I'm not lynching black kids. Mm-hmm. I'm not committing violence towards people, uh, physical violence. So. I'm not a racist. And this story asks the question and takes it a step further and says, like, right, what danger are you creating for people by your either action or inaction or false accusations? Or complacency. Yeah, or complacency, right? Like, what what is the situation that you might be helping to create that makes violence more likely or more possible? And that piece is hard. It's hard to reckon with coming to terms with that you are participating in racism occurring and violence occurring without ever having to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And this this story just really forces you to ask that question of yourself, which I think is a good one to ask. And it's a difficult one to reckon with. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering too, right? Like that, um, I think in a lot of situations in our world we're not necessarily putting people in physical harm's way but there are other ways that we put people in other kinds of danger. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm thinking in particular Lauren, I wonder what what this brings up for you. But, you know, I'm thinking about like in the workplace, like the ways that in the workplace white supremacy is enforced and has been enforced, in order to enforce them, you inherently put people at risk of losing their job, Mm -hmm. right? So let's, for example, like if there's a, a particular expectation that people don't have dreadlocks, right? Like that's been a policy in in corporate America, right? That you you don't have dreadlocks at work. So then you have Black people who have dreadlocks. And so they either have to change their hair and spend money and time changing their hair in some way, making their hair more difficult to manage, or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. If you enforce this policy, which is a policy of white supremacy, then that person is at risk of not having any more income. And so they're at risk of all sorts of other things. And and like economic violence, we don't even, I don't, I don't think most of us would claim it as that or would name it as violence, but to create barriers for people between their survival and their thriving for white supremacy, right? That's violence. Mm-hmm. And to uphold that.
0: In a very similar vein, it makes me think of dress codes in workplaces mm-hmm. and how the same outfit on two different people can bring up extremely different responses. And a lot of it just has to do with the body type that that person has. And there is definitely a racial bias against people who have uh, uh, characteristics like more curvature that technically have, it's it's not rooted in science, but it's an association with race that is either a conscious or unconscious bias in people who set dress codes.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of even this year there, I think in Missouri, in like the state legislature, there was a woman in the Republican Party, a white woman who uh, proposed this legislation, this policy for the members of the state legislature that was a dress code. And it was very much particularly aimed at the Black women who were representatives in the state legislature. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember all of the particulars, but but at one point, the white woman who is a Republican sort of stood up and said, I know, don't you think we could have expected these adult women to dress appropriately? And they are dressed appropriately, right? Mm-hmm. There's not any inappropriateness to the way that they're dressed, but there is a perception that what they are wearing is inappropriate. And I think because they have this lens of you know, indoctrination, if you will, right, that black women are Jezebels, right, that they're temptresses and And so anything that they do or say is oversexualized and made into this potential threat, mm-hmm. this threat to to others. And so I think that's what they see in the film, right? They see that in Mamie by calling her Jezebel.
0: Well, there's also like the oversexualizing of things, but then it's not out of care for someone's being like, "Oh, you will be oversexualized." and that might invite violence towards you. That's not really the message because it's blaming the person for wearing their hair a certain way or wearing clothes on their body a certain way. And it's not done out of care. It's just done out of fear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's no attempt in these like proposed legislation, right? These proposed policies to protect black women, right? Like that is just absolutely not the intent. It's to continue to enforce the norms of white culture in what is deemed to be white spaces. And government is one of those places, right? That that has been sort of deemed unofficially white space with white culture and it's been made and developed in white culture. And so when there's any deviation from that, it is seen as a threat and um, a threat to to the way that things are, which is scary, right? People are afraid of that in a lot of ways, which change is difficult, but, but it's not something, right? To, to have your fear become something that becomes policy for other people mm-hmm. doesn't seem like an effective use of fear and it doesn't seem like an appropriate way to manage fear. Uh, at least in my perspective, I think there's a lot of things that fear tells us, but it might not always be what we think it is on the surface, right? I don't think that woman who's the white Republican who proposes policy, I don't think she thinks she's being racist, right? And I don't think she thinks she's afraid, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think she has these conscious knowings, right? She doesn't she's she hasn't um uncovered what might be underneath that. She learned a rule. And other people seem to not be following it. And so that seems unfair. And so there's, (laughs) right. And it's like, I I get that. I do that in other ways. I, you know, I can definitely get there and that's not ultimately what it is about and how it plays out in a community. Um, How it plays out is, is violence. And so I think, and I think that's a key thing in anti-racism, right? That like we are racist because we swim in racist culture Mm -hmm. to admit that, or to acknowledge that we might not be aware of all of the ways that we are upholding and enforcing white supremacy. It doesn't have to be something that is so self-deprecating. We don't have to just crumble underneath the weight of that. Like I think acknowledging that gives us some freedom and some power to then do something about it then start catching ourselves when we're doing it and question like what what are my motivations here right like why why am i so worked up about this thing right why am i activated about this experience i'm having and then we can start asking ourselves those questions and maybe it has nothing to do with race and but but to wrestle with it is the work of anti racism yes and to build community around that so that you have people who are you know, in the same boat as you a lot of times or in different boats as you to help you kind of process those things and figure out what your motivations might be and to, to change course.
0: So what other aspects of the film stood out to you? Are there any particular scenes?
1: Absolutely, yes. There's a few things. So one piece is that there were Black men who participated in the lynching of Emmett Till. Mm-hmm. I'm watching right now the show The Last of Us. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, Lauren, but um, I don't have HBO Max. Otherwise, I would (laughs) have. Okay. anyway, so this this show, right, is about it's an apocalyptic show where this fungus takes over and it becomes uh, like an illness in people and they become zombie like, but they are not zombies anyway. So it's like the end of the world as we know it. And so when this happens, the federal government becomes authoritarian, right? Probably enact martial law, become this like fascist government ultimately in order to contain and stop this this fungus from spreading. And in the midst of this, they are, you know, when people get bitten by the other people, they like won't tell people they got bitten, right? Mm -hmm. As most zombie zombie shows. And so there are people who don't tell. And there are people who are fighting against this fascist government. So the sort of the enemies of the fascist government are the people who might be infected and the people who are resisting their fascism. And so in the community, there become people that they call collaborators, and those collaborators are people who sell out their community members, their friends and family, in order to survive themselves, right? And they are, like, ostracized to no end, and there are people, like, coming after them and wanting to kill these collaborators, and it made me think of that. There are collaborators in the Emmett Till story. Mm-hmm. There are black men who participate in the lynching and they don't necessarily reckon with that a whole lot in the film. And it's a thing I think we should talk about just like generally as a society. But, um, but it makes me think of, I'm forgetting their names, um, but there was a man who was killed recently by police. There are five policemen and all of them were black. And the man who was killed was black as well. There's this story that emerged, right? That like policing isn't racist if black police are killing black people. Like, then it's not racism. Racism isn't the problem. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And sort of this dismissal of policing being a racist construct and having racist origins. I I wonder that. Like, I had never heard that. I had never heard that there were Black men that were participate, participants in the lynching of Emmett Till. I hadn't known that. And I wonder if part of the reason I hadn't heard that before is because we don't really know what to do with it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and so it's not like a feature of the story. Well, it's it's another complexity. Yeah. It's an extremely
0: complex story, but when it's reduced in history books to a couple paragraphs... You can't fit in all of the the humanizing elements or the parts that are difficult to understand or or reckon with.
1: Right, right. And I think we do see it in another way. There was a farmhand uh, who they like chased down because he was a witness, basically. And he, I don't think he saw anything, but heard the entire lynching take place. Mm-hmm. And and on the stand, they ask him like, "Why didn't you call for help? Like, why didn't you do anything?" And all he could say was, I couldn't. Mm -hmm. And I think for people who are not living under the constant threat of violence, I think that that is really hard to even conceptualize. I, for my whole life, have known and trusted that, like, I, I just, I generally trust other adults in particular, right? Like, even as a kid, it's like, I was instructed to ask for help and I knew that I would without any danger, Mm -hmm. like that there were these systems that were there to protect me and that there were adults that I could ask for help and to not feel that right. To feel that actually, like if you dare whistle in the wrong direction, you'll be lynched. If you step out of line at all, even unknowingly you could be met with major violence and ultimately your death. I just don't think that people who haven't experienced that I think it's really hard to imagine being in a place where there's no one to help and there's nothing that you can do to solve the problem
0: we definitely get that perspective through um the at different points they call him preacher mm-hmm. but I think that's a nickname I think his name is Moses or Moe yeah I think you're right um, it's Mamie's uncle, cousin, family member who was looking after Emmett. Um, yeah. And Emmett was kidnapped from his house. Yeah. And there's two points that fall into this line of thinking. And one is that he was the first black man to testify against a white defendant in a court system in that particular county. I don't know. His plan was to immediately move after the trial. I don't know if that happened, but uh, in the movie, I think it's implied that it did. Mm hmm. And then the second is that uh, when baby visits his house during the trial, she sees that he had a gun. One of the things that he had been telling her is that he couldn't do anything because the people who kidnapped his son, or sorry, her son uh, had, were holding his family at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. And so she asks, why didn't you grab yours? And he has a very similar response of like, I couldn't, but like, that's not, that
1: wasn't an option. Right, right. And it's hard to conceptualize, right? Like we get all of these individual instances of things. And so like, especially in our public conversation around police brutality, right? There are instances and and particular, um, you know, incidents that occur and we focus in on the particularities of the instance. And it's a lot harder to string them all together and to zoom out and look at the whole thing as the water we're swimming in Mm -hmm. to to think about it in a way that like, no, this actually permeates everything. And it's a, like the fact that these incidents are occurring are a public demonstration of what will happen to you if you step out of line. And that line is whatever we decide, we meaning the police or me meaning white people. And to have that constant fear, like your options are limited, are much more limited than I think other white people in particular can imagine. And even Mamie, right, who lived in Chicago, like had a really hard time imagining that they live under constant threat of violence. Like that is not her lived experience. She lives in Chicago. She experiences racism, but definitely in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so to live in a place where there is active, constant, real threat of violence to your body at all times and the constant threat for every single one of your loved ones and all of your neighbors, it's an impossible scenario. Mm -hmm. It's an impossible scenario. And you have so many fewer options. I think one
0: point in the film that really illustrates Mamie's reality in Chicago and how different it is from in Mississippi is uh, when she is shopping in a retailer and the manager, the the person who's in charge of the floor, makes a very obvious microaggression. It's like, "Hey, you know, we have shoes in the basement too," and she responds, "Do you tell all the customers that mm-hmm. she has the." ability to question him and to to stand up for herself, even if she doesn't immediately call about for racism, she definitely impl- implies it. That would not have been an option for any of her family members.
1: Yeah, absolutely. She's able to be a bold, strong woman of resistance, right? Because it's a bit safer for her to do so. I think it is a huge act of bravery for her to take that with her to Mississippi. And she, she opts to do that, right? She, she opts into taking that boldness to the place where she's at way bigger risk, right? So she does ultimately make that choice, but she also has some different protections around her, right? She has the NAACP around her and- She's also staying
0: in Mount Bayou. Yes. Which- I had never heard of at all. Me either. That was a completely new part of the narrative that I was not familiar with. And it, it, it definitely falls into this theme that we've been talking about from the film of spaces and expectations and societal contracts. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts on how Mount Bayou played into the, or what its role in the film was.
1: Okay. So there's this larger narrative around Black people in particular, but around all marginalized people that like... I'm going to say around about black people in particular, right. That there's this idea that like that Africa, the continent is, is, and always has been this uncivilized place and that the trope is that black people are, you know, all the tropes, but they're incapable of making a quote unquote civilized society and that it they can't participate in it because the society, the civilized society that people have in mind is white society. And even so we have places like Mount Bayou. Right. And it also makes me think of black wall street, Mm -hmm. which is like in Tulsa, Um, you know, these communities that were developed and thriving that were black communities, like black built societies and communities that were fully functioning and communal and like protective of one another and where people were successful and had I mean like I I don't know what your perception was of Mount Bayou when they portrayed it but just like I'm like oh this is like a really nice town Mm -hmm. like the streets are clean there's an active downtown with lots of businesses that are thriving right and it's like what we imagine for a functional community these places where black people are very much doing the thing that the stories of racism say they cannot do. Of course we don't know them. I know about them, Lauren, because they these <laughs> stories reject the story of white supremacy that we hear. It goes against the main story. It goes against what they're trying to get us to think. They meaning, I don't know, the powers that be or the the water that we're swimming in, right? It goes against the current.
0: I like the use, uh, the repeated use that we've had of the the phrase, the waters that we're swimming in, especially in reference to Mount Bayou, because mm-hmm. the image that stuck out to me most was the community pool mm. full of happy black children yeah. who didn't have to be worried that they were having fun in public.
1: Right, right, right. That just shouldn't be a privilege, right? But it it was and is a privilege to be careless and innocent and free as a child in public
0: just as a a side note on the the phrase of like innocence that Mm -hmm. is the title of uh mimi's memoir autobiography is the death of innocence and i know that the creators of the film read that book over and over again to try and get stuff as accurate to the experience that she wanted people to have from the narrative
1: yeah absolutely
0: so largely it is a story about death of innocence
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think they did a thing in the film of like right after he dies, they find him and, you know, there's this, they end up putting Emmett on trial basically, right? Like Emmett is ultimately the one on trial Mm. in the public sphere, as well as in the courtroom, right? It's like, did he do something wrong enough for this to be justified? Ultimately is the question. Mm -hmm. Miss Bryant's testimony very much, even though it was, like, false and exaggerated, right, makes it so that everyone is like, oh, yeah, like, he did something bad enough that it was justified. And we can see that in hindsight clearly now, I think, right? Like, we can watch this and you're like, wow, that was obviously wrong. But I think we do it all the time now, right? Like, in instances of police brutality in particular, we ask the question, like, well, what did this person do that made them get shot by police or whatever right like mm-hmm. well they didn't they didn't put their hands up fast enough or they had their hand in their pocket or they had a hoodie on right yeah.
0: none of which are crimes
1: right correct right it's those are things everyone does and so for us to make something that is innocent into a reason for execution is just wild and it's and it's a symptom and like facet of white supremacy that we do that the other sort of piece I don't want to miss because I am a pastor is uh, is the, the points of faith in the film mm-hmm. and faithfulness. So when Emmett's body was returned to Chicago and came off the train, that scene was so profound and moving for me in part because – of Mamie's faith and expressions of faith in that moment Mm -hmm. she falls all over the the pine box that he's in um, and is just sobbing and and cries out like open the box he can't breathe she so much sees life in her son right like she saw so much life that she can't even imagine him dead, mm-hmm. right? It's like impossible. It's just this thing that's outside of her imagination. And then she cries out to God saying, show me what you want me to do and make me able to do it. And I don't know if it's in that moment or just following that um, that moment, but I thought that was a really beautiful prayer. Show me what you want me to do and make me able to do it.
0: Which is then immediately followed by the scene where she sees her son's body. Yes. And all the ways that it was brutalized. There's definitely a transformation in her line of thinking where her anger and her rage grows in the scene, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as despair. Um, And I think at the beginning of the scene, she doesn't know what to do. But by the end of it, she is very strongly convinced that like she has a path forward and she knows how to use the legacy to enact justice or make a difference in the future. And in some ways it's an answered prayer, but not, Mm -hmm. not a joyful one at all.
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I think too, like when the, oh gosh, and I can't remember what his role is now, but the, the man who is her initial contact and he like works for, he works with the mayor and someone else, a councilman or something. Mm -hmm. And he initially is like, you know, take advantage of this, right? Like this is an opportunity. And, and it's sort of like trying to get her to think of the larger implications of of her son's death. And and at that point she's not ready to to go there and is really like, this is my son and he's dead. Like that's what I know. And I, you know, I'm I'm in in the grief and loss of that, which is totally appropriate. And she comes to realize that or come to this point of, like, not that he... I, I appreciated that the story was not turned into, like, that he died for something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or that, like, it was ever intended. Well, I think that's especially, especially profound in the last scene, where... Mm-hmm. He,
0: the movie I thought was going to end with her making this grand speech and um, like taking on the role of like the death will mean something, but it doesn't end there. It actually ends in a very still shot of her mourning in his bedroom. Oh, and that yeah. it's it it wasn't for a reason or like a mysterious path or something like that. Right. It was just a tragedy.
1: Yes, it was just a tragedy. and And she... I don't know how I want to put this, but like like she didn't let the tragedy lie or like she didn't let it be for naught, right? Like to – she sought justice and she allowed and ensured that the public saw – that the community, that the society saw who they were by looking at her son – And that there was this at least effort for like revelation and repentance and changing course and that she didn't shy away from that. And I think that that was really brave. She reminded me in the scene where Emmett is... Emmett's body is being returned to Chicago and coming off the train. Uh, And when she's looking at his face, when she's looking at him, she reminds me of the women at the cross uh, with Jesus. Mm, mm -hmm. So if you don't know that story, all of the disciples leave Jesus and they are not there when he dies or most of them are not one man takes down his body and, and offers his tomb, but it's the women who prepare the body for burial. And so there's lots around that. But um, I think that there is, and a lot of like feminist readings around, around that scenario. But I think that there's something about women being able or having some sort of deep strength. And I don't know if it comes from like a particular experience that women have or just the overarching experience that women have, which is the ability to like look horror in the face and to be present to suffering and vi- like not violence, but it's to be present to suffering and are ultimately the ones who end up responding to that violence and responding to the suffering. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just saw her really in that way of her tenderly touching his body and, and just like looking at him in the face and seeing, seeing the humanity in Emmett beyond what they did to him. She, as his mother, as someone who loved him, could still see the little boy underneath all of the mutilation. And so I think that's perhaps a call for us as well, like in our anti-racism work, to develop that ability within ourselves to see the children, to see the innocence, to see the humanity in other people, even though they've been victims of violence rather than trying to justify the violence. The spiritual practice for us then becomes to cultivate the ability to see the human being first before we see like the criminal, right? That That's really because Jesus, right? Jesus was executed for supposedly being a criminal, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we would all say, but there's this like deep value and it was wrong that he was he was crucified. The spiritual practice for us always is to to see people as people rather than as criminals or whatever other label that we give people for existing in society, right? <laughs> in all the ways that we exist in society and make mistakes or missteps.
0: I feel that's a it's a really good place to leave off I know we can talk about this for like hours and hours but I value your time
1: (laughs) thank you Lauren I value yours too and yeah thank you for just being a great conversation partner about these films it's been yeah it's just really fun and engaging and a helpful practice for me as well it's just valuable for to spend this time doing some of this work and uh and you're a wonderful and faithful conversation partner so thank you
0: Thank you so much.
1: Uh, and thank you,
0: listeners, for listening to the Anti-Racist Film Club po- blah, blah, blah. That was such a smooth transition. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Anti-Racist Film Club podcast. If you haven't seen Till, it's currently available to rent most places you can rent movies. If you have found a free option, let me know. To learn more about the Anti-Racist Film Club itself, visit fumcoley.org or follow the links in our description below. This is a monthly podcast, so be sure to follow us on whatever platform you're currently listening to, such as Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Music, so you don't miss out on our next upload. And feel free to share with us—oh my gosh, I feel so flustered after compliments. (laughs) And feel free to share us with your friends, the number one way you can support this podcast. But before we sign off, I just want to thank you, Pastor Alexa, for leading our conversation today.
1: Thank you, Lauren. I'm glad to.
0: And a special final announcement that next month, while there will be no official club meeting, the podcast will still release a normally scheduled episode. So be sure to tune in and give us a listen. Otherwise, thanks for listening.